Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find that on page 821, I believe. Eight hundred and twenty-one, and we will be looking at the first thirty-one verses of this chapter. In this, the second act, as it were, of Mark, kind of from Mark eight twenty-two through the end of chapter ten, is the second act, and it is an act all about bending around discipleship. So, this morning, the topic of our sermon, the title is Kingdom Discipleship. We'll be looking at verses one through thirty-one. <clears throat> Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote to you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most haunting books I read last year was on my book list, was The Indifferent Stars Above. It's a historical account of the Donner Party. 
Now, I had known the basic story of the Donner Party, but what I didn't know is one of the main reasons the party landed in that situation was not simply because of bad decisions. It was because they'd been sold a lie for financial gain. The author of the book states, Lansford Hastings was the man, was an entrepreneur with a casual regard for the truth. And due to a real estate deal, he sought to redirect people on their way to Oregon down to California near present-day Sacramento. He had authored a book called The Immigrant's Guide to California and Oregon. And he claimed that there was a cutoff moving from Wyoming, cutting down through just south of the Salt Lake and on into California instead of the usual route to go head across Idaho and down. The problem was, before writing the book, he'd never taken that shortcut. Well, finally, after publishing this book and securing his real estate deal to make more money, he set off to take this route in order to convince many immigrants to follow him. But he did so on a horse with a pack mule or two, knowing full well that those he would try to convince to take this route winding through the Wasatch Mountain canyons would be one they'd be taking with carts weighing as 2,500 pounds or more towed by oxen, made his way through and wrote letters to be handed out to the immigrants on the way, head the shortcut, come to California, there's a place waiting for you. Underneath the tragic Donner story then is a tale of greed, of money making, regardless of truth, regardless of the lives that it would cost, and countless such tales can be told down through the ages. As the Apostle Paul said, money truly is the root of all sorts of evil. And our passage this morning will land on that element of wealth as we saw, beginning with the discussion of marriage, divorce, and then children. Although as we'll see, these three topics that Jesus deals with in this sec- section are not the main issue. They're launch pads for him to deal with this issue of discipleship. So while he addresses marriage and divorce and children and money, those aren't the main thing he's dealing with. He's pressing on into what his kingdom discipleship really look like, which is why that's the name of our sermon. The big idea is Jesus' call to discipleship must reshape everything about how we understand our lives. One more time. Jesus' call to discipleship must reshape everything about how we understand our lives. And we'll walk through this passage under the four points. Marriage and God's design, children and simple faith, salvation and true security, and forsaking and gaining all things. I would like to note, this morning's four-point sermon proves that a Baptist preacher can do something other than a three-point sermon, although I'd also like to note that this is a three-point text. The three-point, though, the third pericope, or short story, has the extended discussion with Peter and the boys, and so I felt it would behoove us to have a fourth point this morning, although it it was a struggle for me. Okay, well, with that, we'll come to our first point, marriage in God's design. Well, Jesus here is on the way. The the second act of Mark's gospel is really this on the way. Mark's gospel moves geographically. So the first eight and a half chapters is him up in the Galilee region, and now he's on the way to the cross. And as he's on his way, he's training his disciples. And he heads his way south, and he crosses the Jordan, it says, to the east, to the region of Perea. And he heads in, and while he's there, a group comes up to him. And this is almost a parallel scene to Mark 7. The Pharisees come up. You can flip back and forth and read this in Mark 7. You'll see many, many parallels between the two. And Mark tells the story in this way of these were the kinds of challenges Jesus got from the Pharisees. And they come up and they ask him a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Did you catch the framing of the question? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
Well, that question is entirely framed by the cultural assumptions of their day, because only men could initiate a divorce. Now, there were some rare exceptions. Oftentimes, by women of means, maybe upper-class women who could work something out or if a man did something particularly horrible. But it was a distinctly male culture in that sense. Ron dealt with this this morning. I was sitting there smiling just at how much the Sunday school overlaps with the sermon this morning. But one commentator noted, in the Jewish world, a man could be said to commit adultery against the husband of a woman, or he could be said to commit adultery against a woman, or I mean against uh, her, a woman's husband, but not against a woman. So diminished was their status in that world. And the Pharisees show up and they ask this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus' response is rather interesting, because he said, what did Moses command you? Well, even the Pharisees catch that one because they respond, well, Moses permitted. He permitted divorce. Now, another interesting piece of background information is that divorce rights were basically assumed in Judaism. There was no real debate over whether or not divorce was okay. The debate among the rabbis were the grounds for divorce. Why would we allow someone to get divorced? And in particular, there were kind of two major schools, the conservative school and the liberal school, you might say. Rabbi Shimei uh, allowed divorce only for adultery. And then on the other hand, there was Rabbi uh, Hillel, who allowed divorce for almost any reason. He wrote, even for burning a meal. There was another who went further, Rabbi Akib, who went so far as to say that divorce was allowed if, quote, a man found another fairer than she. Notice the patriarchal nature of the conversation. Moreover, the rabbinic writings assumed that remarriage was just okay, that it was acceptable. Uh, when a woman was issued a, uh, a divorce decree, it said right on it, you are free to marry whomever you wish. So Jesus asks, what did Moses command? So, well, he permitted it. And they quote from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. However, Deuteronomy 24 neither mandates divorce nor even sets a legal ground for divorce. Given the Pharisees' assumptions, in fact, it is deeply ironic that they would quote from that passage. I don't have the time to go back and walk through those four verses, uh, but Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, in a nutshell, is a passage protecting a woman who is divorced. <laughs> Boy, they got that one wrong. This is the basic story. A woman would get a dowry, and then she would go, and she would get married. And it says in Deuteronomy 24 there, if she did something uh, unright, if there was uncleanness found in her, well, it would have had to have been less than adultery, uh, but some sort of uncleanness. So the first husband has a legal right to divorce her, basically. And he divorces her. He gets to keep her dowry because she sinned. And then if she remarries, then the, the Deuteronomy 24 goes on to say, if she remarries and that husband sends her away for some dumb reason, she would keep her dowry. Or if he dies, she would keep her dowry. And then it says, the first husband cannot remarry her. Why? Because he can't steal the second dowry from her too. It's all about protecting women. And the Pharisees had taken it and abused it for centuries and used it as grounds for letting a man put away his wife. Friends, I hope you see how incredibly important it is to get the Bible right. How easy the Bible is from these learned Pharisees to twist the scriptures and get them completely wrong. And as Ron dealt with in Sunday school this morning, it has been a pattern, sadly, a, a horrific pattern, that women have oftentimes been the brunt of these types of situations. I can give you many examples, but famed theologian of the Catholic Church, Thomas Aquinas, made ridiculous horrific statements about male superiority of intellect and reason. 
Here was his logic. Now, you can read Aquinas, brilliant man, but on this point, you're just going, how do you even get there? It's because cultural assumptions shaped his exegesis. But what he basically said, well, man was created first, so he has more of the image of God than woman. So anybody who reads Genesis says that's not how that works. But that was very common, and he was the theologian of the Catholic Church. We could offer hundreds, maybe even thousands of other examples of this type of thing down through the ages. But friends, it is so critically important that we resubmit our ideas and conclusions to the text of Scripture. It's not enough to get the Bible mostly right. Doing so can cause great harm, as was the case here, with this passage being used to abuse women. Well, in response to their misreading of Scripture, Jesus says, Moses wrote what he did to hedge sin. That's basically the argument. This is a fascinating point. Most of the time when we think of the law, what we think of is the law says, thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that, right? That's the normal way you think about the law. But what Jesus says is that at least some of the law was written specifically to stop sin, to, to, to cut it short, to, to, to reduce harm is the idea. Notice, not, the entire law is not all prescriptive. Some of the law is, is also doing other things. And so this law was trying to slow down sin. But then Jesus goes on to say that that's not the way God designed marriage. A marriage for God was permanent, period. That's the way Mark tells this story. It's, it's rather stunning. There's no exception clause here, like there is in Matthew. There's no exception clause here, like there is in Paul. Marriage is permanent, it says. So how do we put these things together? Well, what Jesus is showing you is that God's design for marriage was a permanent institution. And yet we live in a broken and fallen world where even his most holy word can be used and abused. And so, sometimes there are those elements of the law that just seek to exist to hedge sin. The point here, though, is the permanence of marriage is clearly upheld. But notice, rather than getting into all the details, which I'd be fascinated to do, Jesus isn't doing that here so much. He's using this to say, look at the call to discipleship. The call to discipleship is radical commitment to do what God designed to be done, not what's convenient, not like the Pharisees are doing it here. Now, remember, what I said here is, Jesus is upholding the permanence of marriage, but he's also overturning their cultural view. Look again at verses 10 through 12. Now the disciples have come to him. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Ah, do you see what Jesus is doing? That wasn't possible. Non-Jewish society. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Male, female, have been made in the image of God. And if you go writing your wife a certificate of divorce and you marry anybody else, you are sinning against her because that union has not and cannot be broken. This text doesn't speak to the difficulties of living in a fallen world. So I, I, I'm not going to take the time to do that. That is an important topic that does need to be wrestled with. But rather, notice how this passage is functioning in Mark's gospel. What's dealing with here is that the Pharisees are using the scripture like a wax nose. They're trying to use it for their purposes. They want to see what Scripture permits. They want to bend the Bible around their preferences to maintain their positions, their cultural power. What Jesus says is, no, no, no. Our job is to get back to what God designed. Our job is to go back to how he has built it. And kingdom disciples 
bend their whole lives around what God has designed. So that's what's happening in this passage. And with that, we'll come to our second point, children in simple faith. So we've seen how this first passage of marriage is launching off. It's dealing with marriage, but it's launching into a bigger question of following what God has designed. And the similar thing will happen in this second point. Look again at verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. <clears throat> this is the second time in this second act of Mark where Jesus is addressing children. And the, the first time it happens, if you remember, we're here for that, it's a discussion of status. Children had no status, no cultural status, and that was the main thing. The contrast there was the disciples saying, who's the greatest? And Jesus is saying, be like a child, <laughs> be like one with no status. Well, that continues here. You still see this picture of status, but also Jesus adds the more familiar comment, which is receive the kingdom of God like a child. That is in absolute dependence, in simple childlike faith, Right? Unlike the Pharisees who are seeking to use God's word as a tool for their cultural power, no, children are in complete dependence. Uh, they, they trust what is given to them. Uh, they're disciples. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that, that we as disciples with childlike faith don't ever question. No, Paul will tell us, be Bereans and study. And, but rather, this short story is, is serving to show us that there is to be this total dependence upon what God said. In the first story, God said, this is what marriage looks like. That should be our default. Our default shouldn't be the out, like the Pharisees. Our default should be to take it on childlike faith. And this is often the way that God saves, is it not? Those without status or means in the world, they're often the ones God calls and uses. Now, that's not a universal rule, but it's often the case. And the reason being is that while children have no choice but to trust those who provide for them, it's those ones who often are such an example of what it is to truly trust God, and not God, and. In other words, Jesus is showing us that his call to discipleship must shape everything about our lives. We do not get to come to him on our own terms. We come in total dependence upon him. One scholar noted it well. Authentic discipleship, then, is not about self-gratification, but about giving ourselves in sacrificial service for the kingdom of God. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like living your life out in the local church. I mentioned and prayed for that we'll be having a member meeting right after this. We'll be heading downstairs, and, and this church will do its job. The members of this church will do its job. Uh, see, First uh, Peter 2 says that we are a kingdom of priests. And what church membership is, it is a group of believers who've covenanted together to, to walk out their discipleship together, serving as priest kings. They're doing the job that God gave them. In Christ, that Adamic priest king job has been restored to us, and we wield the keys of the kingdom as a church when we come together as members to join in that great commission work. And today, the members of this church will do that work by assessing the profession of faith of 12 people. And our job is to say that person has the right profession, welcome into membership. And they join the work of this church here in this place. Jesus gave the church the keys of the kingdom. And so our wielding of those keys is saying this person has the right profession. 
come and join Jesus' team. Here's the jersey. Come and join us as we do this Great Commission work. And that's exactly what we'll do at the end of this service. But actually, at the end of the service, we'll do one more thing. We're going to do a baptism where you quite literally get to see someone baptized into membership because then he'll go down and get voted in right afterward. Here's the thing. Only local churches have the authority to baptize. They're the ones who have the authority to, to operate. It's not individuals. Of course, individuals get baptized, but it's the local church who has been given the authority by Jesus to do this work of baptizing those with the profession of faith into Jesus' body in the local church. This is why historically it was simply impossible to be a Christian without being a member of a local church. Baptism is that local church's act of marking off those people from the rest of the world, of saying you're on Jesus' team. That baptizee has a personal profession. They're saying, I trust Jesus, and they're making their faith public. But the baptizer is the church, and they're saying, you belong to Jesus, and you've been baptized into his flock. That's what baptism is. Biblically, then, membership is that work of the church using the keys of the kingdom, assessing the profession of faith and welcoming people into membership. And as Ron is teaching us, is then walking out our discipleship and regularly taking the Lord's Supper together, the covenant renewal meal, and one anothering, loving one another, caring for one another. Jesus' call to simple childlike faith and trust, then, is entirely bound up with our commitment to God and other members in a local church. Let me push this logic a little further. Only members of a church can actually obey the command to submit to your leaders. They're not your leaders unless you submit to that church. You see the problem? The command to submit to your leaders can only be obeyed by Christians who actually join a local church. Otherwise, they're not really your leaders. Moreover, Jesus calls the church's flock. Flocks, by definition, have borders. They have boundaries. And likewise, elders of this church are commanded to care for and will be held accountable to care for the flock. Well, who's that flock? Well, if you don't have borders and boundaries, if you don't have defined lines of who is a member, who is the one being cared for, then we just don't know. That's not the way that God has designed it. Sadly, there's been this anemic nature of evangelical theology since the Great Awakening of the mid-19th century, particularly the later 19th century and 20th century got really bad. And what happened was, is membership took on this idea that it was this optional extra. It's for those who want to vote. It's for the maybe more committed or whatever. But that is not what biblical membership is at all. Biblically, membership is being united to Christ and his church in this place. To join with these other members in doing the work of the Great Commission. Now, if you're listening carefully, you might be thinking, this guy's rather like hyper-membership dude. Let me push this case just a little bit further. Because here's the thing, if we rewinded 150 years, I wouldn't be the weird one. You all would be weird. I'm just being funny, of course. My point is, is that we have been totally changed in our understanding of what the church is since the Great Awakening, and here's why. In the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, pragmatism ruled the day. You know what pragmatism is? It's do what works. So basically what happened was, is there was this idea, we need to get, pardon the crass expression, butts in the seats. How do we get butts in the seats? Well, we do what works. Lower the bar, lower the bar, lower the bar. And so everything happened to lower the bar. And membership continued on in kind of this anemic form, but it continued on. But for the most part, it was gutted of all its biblical and theological and historical rootage. So this downgrade continued to play out. And one of the most popular arguments for why this happened was this. People would say, it's unloving 
not to welcome people who are, who are unwilling to join your church. And that seems like a powerful argument until you start asking some questions. Is it unloving for me to draw a line around my marriage and say, I will love this woman this way only? Well, no one in their right mind would say that's unloving. That's the very definition of love, is to draw a line, a demarcation, and say this is this kind of love, and it will never be outside of these borders. That's what the church does in membership. It is God taking his people and drawing a line around them and saying, these are mine. And so the message of the gospel is for this church to declare to the nations, do you want to know the love of Christ Because his love has been poured out in the blood of Christ for these people. Repent and believe and come join what it is to walk in the love of Christ. That's what membership is, biblically. That's what it is. That's why there's no category of like something between member and non-member. That is so historically novel. This church was founded with the Pendleton Baptist Church Manual. I have one of the old copies. I'll let you read it. And it's very clear. This is the way it worked. The founders of this church understood this. They wouldn't even let you take the Lord's Supper until you had proven your baptism and had been brought into membership. That's how important it was. Why? Because there's no such thing as this third way, this island in between. It doesn't work that way. Simple childlike faith is a commitment to God and his people, to the one another's, to being a light for the gospel. And Jesus specifically says that the picture the world needs to see is these distinct, marked-off people loving each other in such a way that the world says, how do we have community and love like that? It only is distinct when it's marked off. So we're brought into the church that is marked off from the world. Now, as a side note, this is why I am so thankful that we've had the opportunity to candidate with Jeff. He understands this history. He understands the pragmatic stuff that leached its way into the church in the late 1900s. He understands that the historic view of discipleship is local church membership being meaningful. And that that is how we put a megaphone to the gospel. By demonstrating that the love of Christ is welcome for all who repent and believe. But there's no islands. The whole message of the middle portion of Mark and his call to discipleship is a radical commitment to him as Lord. The simple faith is this then. Far from an extra, membership in the local church is the biblical expectation of all Christians. It's how we walk out our childlike dependence in faith by committing to God with these people in this place to declare the gospel to those around us and be a light to the world. As a matter of fact, it is this drawing a line in the sand of marking off God's people that Jesus is going to do in the third story that we come to. So look at verse 17 through 22. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have. And give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. I've always read this story, whether right or wrong, from the position of the disciples. For some reason, I picture this man, probably maybe his dress just showed that he had a little more money. And you can kind of see him. The guy runs up, falls on his knees before Jesus, and the disciples are going, finally, we're getting some real followers. These are the kinds of people we need 
And then Jesus gives this response. Did you catch the tension? I hope you feel this. This is Jesus drawing a line in the sand. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Notice what he's doing. He's pricking his pretensions. He's trying to show him it's not enough to come part way. It's all the way or nothing. And then he moves on to this next view of, of asking him about, do the commandments. Well, I've kept all the commandments. And then he gives them the, the you know, commandment 5 through 10. It's 6 through 10, and then, and then number 5 is basically what happens. What's interesting, though, there's a little hiccup, is that the 10th commandment, instead of not coveting, he says, you shall not defraud. And there's questions as to why this is. I think the best explanation is because a man this rich, he didn't have a lot to covet. So his type of coveting would be to defraud his workers, to not pay them a fair wage. And so that's possibly why it is that Jesus gives that 10th commandment is don't defraud. Don't be tempted not to pay a fair wage on this guy. And he goes back to honor your father and mother. Well, remember, in their culture, this idea of being wealthy was very much just like if you're wealthy, you're blessed of God. And there are some pro uh, pro uh, Proverbs that say this, so Proverbs 10, 15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and the poverty of the poor is their ruin. But as with Deuteronomy 24, abused of its context, if you just go a few more verses long, Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So they had this cultural thing that if someone had money, then they, they were well-to-do, and you can just see the disciples almost on the edge of their seat. This is the guy. And Jesus looks at him first and challenges him. Why do you call me good? In other words, who are you to evaluate? Do you have the right evaluation of what it is? Culture says that you're blessed because you're rich. Is that the evaluation you're going to have at the end of this conversation? Only God is good. Only God gets to define what is good. Well, the man responds, well, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a kid. Well, depending on how you take that, that could either be total nonsense or it could make sense. It could be total nonsense in that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarifies that the commandments have a little bit more entailments to them than maybe first looks. You've heard it said, do not murder. I say, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So at one level, there's no way that this man has perfectly kept the commandments. And yet there's another level where you could see that. Uh, Paul was happy to say, I was blameless before the law. Uh, Peter was happy to say, I have never put anything unclean in my mouth. And it seems that that's the way Jesus takes it, because he doesn't rebuff the man's claims. Instead, he gets to the heart issue. The man's behavior towards others seems to be impeccable, and Jesus doesn't seem to question that. Now, often the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, Ten Words, which we read from earlier, are seen to fall in two tables. Not everybody sees it this way, but the first four are the ones having to do with our relationship with God, and the next six are the ones having to do with our relationship with each other. Did you notice Jesus chooses those six, six through ten and number five, the relationships with each other? And the man, you know, seems to, for all these things, he seems to be absolutely up to snuff. But that's when Jesus decides to say, sell everything and come and follow me. It's a subtle way of showing that perhaps the first commandment wasn't being upheld like this man thought. We read it earlier. First commandment is to love the Lord your God and worship him only. No other gods before him. So do you see how Jesus draws a line in the sand? Is your wealth functionally your God? Now, what's fascinating about this picture is that Jesus didn't have to have him sell everything. 
There's nothing in the, rest of, in the rest of the Bible that shows that you have to live in a radical communitarian lifestyle, that you have to sell everything. That's part of the whole argument with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. You know, and he says, it was yours. You didn't have to give it all. The problem is you lied about it. So that's not at stake. Why does Jesus command him to give all? Because it seemed for this man that if he hung on to any of it, that that would still vie for his affections. That would still be part of his trust. That would be what he is hoping in. Jesus draws a line in the sand. There can be no other claimants to the throne. I cannot share the throne of your affections with anybody or anything else. Private property isn't the issue. But what's stunning is Jesus looked at him and loved him. By loving him, he drew a line and said, true love crosses that line. I hope you see that. That's what Jesus does. Now, we don't know. Maybe this man later turned and he saw that he needed to cross that line, that, that his affections were disordered. But that's what Jesus calls love, drawing a line. This is what it means to be one of my people. Well, for some Christians this morning, what are the ways that maybe you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can sometimes share the throne, as it were, of your affections? Well, maybe for some this morning, it is consistency. It's finding comfort and security in sameness and lack of change. Nobody likes change, but sometimes the idea of change can so rock us that it seems like our world is collapsing. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, I'd say ask some hard questions. Is Jesus calling you to trust in him alone? Yes. Are you sharing that trust with sameness, with avoiding change? Or maybe for others, maybe what it is is it's a need to be needed, whether it's friends or relationships, the, the hope of a relationship. And maybe when that relationship is rocky, you feel crushed and you feel ruined. Your, your security and your self-worth is being shattered because there's something else that is sharing the throne with Jesus. Friends, this is why Jesus doesn't lower the bar for this man. It's because he cannot share the throne. He's calling us to kingdom discipleship where he alone is king, where he alone rules. The Christian gospel is the good news that Jesus plus nothing is everything we need for this life and for the life to come. And we will continue to hope and, and search for many other things and all sorts of other securities. But Jesus, friends, is entirely sufficient. And our job as members of this church is to remind each other of that reality week in and week out. The Christian life is one of constantly dethroning, of tearing down those other loves which are seeking to shove Jesus off to the side. It is a constant circling back to the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why Jesus doesn't lower the bar. That's why Jesus doesn't remove the line. He draws it sharper. And with this hard line in the sand, now Jesus transitions to another stunning argument about the impossibility of salvation apart from him. This is forsaking and gaining all things. Verses 23 through 31. <clears throat> Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and last first. Well, we see Jesus, his comments here, shock the disciples. They come back three, two, two times with more amazement. The language particularly starts to grow in, in the Greek as well. That's why just NIV just says, and they were even more amazed. So it's, no, they were perplexed beyond measure. They're, they're overcome by this. They're shocked by this saying that Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for this rich man or a rich man. And then he's going to downgrade to all men <laughs> to be saved. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I've often heard it said that uh, this picture of the camel, the eye of the needle, basically people have such a hard time with this that they try to find a way to get around it. So maybe you've heard this one, uh, where the the eye of the needle was like a little mini gate uh, where camels could take off all their stuff and they could crawl through on their knees. That's a bunch of bunkum. Uh, Another one I've heard is that, uh, well, the Greek word for camel, it sounds similar to the word for rope, and so it's like getting a rope through the eye of a needle. Hey, newsflash, rope through the eye of a needle is still impossible. Uh, That doesn't solve the problem. No, Jesus is really clear. It's impossible. I don't know how much easier it could be, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen people trying to find a way to be like, well, it can't be like impossible, right? No, that's what he says. He says it's impossible. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, 48 would say this, God demands you to be perfect as he is perfect. That's the standard. As with the rich man, he doesn't lower the bar. The standard is perfection. Only God is capable of saving anyone. Human beings add nothing but the sin that makes our salvation necessary. Only radical surgery can cure this cancer, it's been said. And that's why throughout the Bible, the understanding of what salvation is uses these metaphors which are meant to grab you. They're meant to make you go, then who can be saved? Uh, So for example, you have radical heart surgery, heart transplant removing a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. I don't know about you, but I don't think you can do that on your own. I just don't think that works. Uh, It gets worse, though. That's the easier of the ones, because at least you're like, well, a living person could kind of do that. No, he then makes it abundantly clear. Salvation is like the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel preaches to. Can these bones live? Oh, Lord, you know. This is why Paul will say in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not Princess Bride, not mostly dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive and raised us and seated us with Christ. Salvation is entirely a work of God. We don't trigger it. We don't cause it. We don't light the match. It's God's work. This is Jesus' argument in John 3 when he meets with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him, I think you're rather special. And Jesus says, you don't even know how to evaluate me. Very, very similar argument he has with this man. You don't understand. If you even want to see this, you have to be born again. Nicodemus' response, how does a man who's fully grown re-enter the womb and get born again? Jesus is like, now you're onto something. It's right. It's impossible. You can't do it. You don't have the ability. So John 3, 7 through 8, Jesus says this. Don't marvel that I said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you hear the logic of what Jesus says there? The new birth is like wind, which blows. Just curious, how many have caused the wind to blow? I'll keep waiting. Nobody has ever caused the wind to blow. His whole argument is, you don't cause it. You only see its effects. You know the wind's blowing by what it accomplishes. You don't trigger. You don't start. You don't flick the new birth. God causes people to be born again. And you see the effects of that new birth. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We have no affectual relationship with our salvation. God saves Oh, we repent and we believe. We declare to all, you must repent and believe. You must be born again. But only God can accomplish that work of salvation. That's what Jesus says. And to this huge situation, the disciples now are at the end of their theological tether, as it were, so Peter decides to pipe off for the group. Well, you told this guy to leave everything. We've left everything. That's got to count for something, right, Jesus? It just is incredible. We've left everything for you. Do you hear the hyperbole? Later we find out Peter still has his wife. He's got a fishing boat. Okay, maybe not everything. They've lost most things. But Jesus doesn't press Peter's claim. Rather, he responds by pressing the need to leave everything for his sake and the gospel's sake. It is those who leave everything will receive a hundred times in this life and in the life to come. Now the faith and prosperity preachers love this verse. See? A hundred times in this life. That's what it says. A hundred times in this life. Yeah, read the rest of the verse. Do you see what it says? Of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children in the faith. That's the point. In the age to come, you get eternal life. Oh, there's provision as well. We'll deal with that. But the context first starts with relational losses. And so it's saying God provides our relational needs and our material needs in the church. So I wonder... For those of you more seasoned members of the church, who maybe children have been long moved out, who are your current children in the faith? Uh, who are those you're taking under your wing? Well, for coffee or an email exchange? Who are those younger members you're pouring into? Younger member, who are those parents in the faith here that you are loving and caring for? Who are those siblings in the faith? There's a reason the church for a long time has called each other brother and sister, because we're siblings in the faith. That's how the church is meant to operate, the one another's Ron is taking us through. To invent a verb, the church is to family its members. Children loving new parents of the faith and vice versa and siblings. But it's not only relational needs, it's material needs as well. Homes and fields, he mentions here. See, contrary to the false teachers, though, this isn't about getting rich. It's about God's people being his hands and his feet of caring for those in need. I praise God that we have a benevolence fund. That fund shouldn't be held onto like a money bag in the corner. It needs to be used and replenished. It needs to be poured out for the sake of the members of this church, and then it needs to be replenished. We need to care for and love and help those in need, and we need to continue to do so. That's how we continue to fulfill this role. And then Jesus ends with a very familiar saying, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. James Edwards helpfully writes on this verse this, quote, the kingdom of God topples our cherished priorities and demands of disciples, new ones. It takes from those who follow Jesus things they would keep, and it gives them things they could not imagine. Those who take their stand on riches, whatever riches might be, will have nothing to stand on. As the call to discipleship is to give up everything, not only possessions, but even people and places, potentially. As Jesus said, 
maybe even our own lives. Friends, Jesus' call to discipleship must reshape everything about how we understand this life, our priorities, our comforts. All those other things that we find hope and security in will be worthless in the light of eternity. And we could use many closing examples, but I'll give you one because I'm working on this for a class reading through parts of Augustine's uh, City of God. In the year 410 AD, Rome fell, and word came to Augustine, this bishop in Carthage, his pastor in Carthage, that it fell. And it's, it's all but impossible for us to understand how enormous this was. Rome was the eternal city. About the closest thing we could probably think of is, I bet you remember what you were doing on the morning of 9-11. Because it was just so shocking. It grabs you. And that's the way this would have been for them, to hear news that Rome had fell. Well, part of the problem was, is people reacted to that. As what happened when 9-11 happened, is people gave different excuses. Why is this happening? Some said, well, it's because we're wicked and, and we're greedy. And others said, oh, it's because we don't have enough military. And you know, the talking heads went back and forth. Well, in their day, what happened was, is for some in the secular world, they were saying it's the Christians' fault. Rome has been tolerating these Christians for too long, and almost 100 years that they've been doing so. But in the process, a number of Christians had suffered severely, some violently, others had everything they'd ever had lost. See, Christians then and now have to wrestle with those why, why suffering, why all this cultural decay? Why is God calling us to live in this time when it seems everything is falling apart? Why persecutions? Well, that's exactly what was going on when Augustine wrote book one of the city of God. And to some of those who'd suffered physically and others materially, he seeks to answer this why question and he writes these words. Ask whether there has befallen men of faith and piety any evil which could not work to their good. According to the pregnant saying of St. Paul, we know that to them that love God, all things work together unto good. And one might say, they've lost everything they had. But is that really true? Have they, for instance, lost their faith or their piety or those treasures of an interior life which make a man rich before God? Do you hear what he's saying? And for Christians, there must never be anything here that we hold so dear that leaves us in ruins. Which is why Augustine goes on to say, nothing could really be lost on earth save what you would be ashamed to take to heaven. Nothing can be lost on earth save what you would be ashamed to take to heaven. Friends, is this how we view our life of discipleship? A life always pressing on towards greater satisfaction in Christ. So that as the old song says, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Did you finally, in closing, catch how all three of these stories point us, whisper to us about Jesus? See, all three of these radical calls to discipleship are calls that Jesus himself fulfills in his life. Because Jesus is the true bridegroom, is he not? Who did not divorce his adulterous wife. And though he's the all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal son of God, he, as it were, came as the babe, experiencing that very least and lowest position in society. And as his call to the rich man, it was nothing he had not experienced, because when he took on flesh, he left behind, as it were, the glories and treasures and comforts of heaven to come and live in our place and die in our place. Friends, the call to follow Jesus is a life-altering call. It cannot be added to or appended 
he has to take the place on the throne alone. His call to discipleship must reshape everything about how we understand this life. And so may we seek to be a church whose members live not for our own personal preferences, but for his glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our neighborhood as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the one who left all for us, the one who demonstrated what it was to be a kingdom disciple by giving up his life for us. What an incredible reality this is, that we, those who've been marked off from the world, brought into your family because of what Christ has done, get to continue to declare this message to those around us. Would you give us strength and endurance to do so? For Jesus' sake, amen.